What you fear establishes the boundaries of your freedom. I would walk into projects with armed guards with Uzi machine guns in every entry. Cocaine stacked the ceilings. And I would walk in and make contact with the owners of drug cartels and begin to talk to them about life and God. So I decided to flip the script for myself and I decided to use fear to my advantage. Whatever I was afraid of, I moved toward. When I was making $6,000 a year, I actually considered myself a success. Welcome back to Inspire Change with Jordan Mulligan. Today I am joined with an absolutely amazing human being. He has authored many books and sold millions of copies worldwide. His humble beginning started in Los Angeles in impoverished neighborhoods where he would help people get off the streets by delivering them with philosophy, teachings around finances and helping them out of their situation. He built that up to become the pastor of the megachurch Mosaic in Los Angeles. And that is where I join him today at his event, the arena at the Mosaic Church, where we had an amazing experience with Erwin McManus and his son, Aaron McManus. Today's video was sponsored by Huel, a quick, affordable, and nutritionally complete source of food that I absolutely love. If you want to find out more, head to the link in the description and we'll talk about this more later. But before that, join me at the mega church, The Mosaic, where I digest philosophy, Christian teachings, and financial advice from the amazing Owen McManus. Let's dive into it. The first thing I'd like to start with is um, interesting growing up, like the stories I'm hearing from Kim, um, your background. I'd love to hear that just to start off with, like just some background. Well, I'm from a small country in Central America, south of Mexico, north of Colombia, called El Salvador, that um, is infamous because for the past several decades, it has been the most uh, violent country in the world, the highest murder rate of any country in the world, um, uh, ravaged by war for a great deal of time. And uh, so I'm from the capital, San Salvador, and uh, Aaron, when he was maybe 10 years old, actually went to the house I grew up in. So it's crazy that my grandparents raised me for the first few years of my life. And um, yeah, so Spanish was my first language. My mom had to leave me with our grandparents, me and my brother, because she went to work for Pan Am as a stewardess. Uh, I never knew my real father. He was a linguist. He spoke at least six to 12 languages. And they were married for a brief season of time when my mom was 16 to 19. Uh, she got pregnant, had my brother, then she got pregnant. And while she was pregnant with me, um, something violent happened and um, uh, the marriage ended. And um, so I didn't know my mom or dad as a small child. My grandparents raised me at first. They were my mom and dad. And then one day my mom took us to the United States, to I think New York, and then Miami. And then she married someone who was involved in what we called creative underground economies. And uh, I'll take a few minutes to figure that out. <laughs> and uh, was deeply connected to a, um, an Italian family in Chicago. And um, he did something that um, they did not like. He disappeared. He needed an alias. Runs to Miami, meets my mom. They get married within a few weeks. And then we, we come to the States. He takes us to a police station, convinces the police that we've been robbed. And I walk out with a, an alias, McManus. So I grew up my entire life with an, a false identity. Uh, I walk in Spanish, I walk out Irish. And then all of a sudden, I'm basically Irwin McManus. And so I've always had uh, 
identity crisis, you know, who am I? What's my story? Where do I come from? And and because they didn't want me to have the trauma of all that story, they rewrote the story and told me my stepdad was my real dad and that my past memories were not real. So I had all these memories of a life before Bill McManus, but I was told that those memories were not valid. So by the time I was 10 years old, I was a uh, psychotic mess and I was uh, in a psychiatric chair and and out of a hospital uh, for psychosomatic illnesses. Uh, And I was a mess. Um, I began having traumatic nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night and while I was awake, the nightmares would still be vivid and real. Um, I was a straight D student. I, I would disappear into an imaginary world. The class would be gone and I would wake up and the teacher in the class would be gone, but they couldn't pull me back. So I was a pretty broken uh, human being. So that was like my early stages of my journey. And, um, you know, I, I joke about it, but it wasn't funny at the time, but probably when I was in sixth grade, I read a lot of um, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asinoff, Ray Bradbury, Andre Norton, all these physicists who wrote science fiction. And I think it allowed me to have a really vivid imagination, but I began living in this inside world, convinced myself that I was from another planet, that I was uh, an experiment, that they dropped me here to see if we could merge with humans. And I remember I would run, I would sleepwalk and be gone in the neighborhoods in El Salvador, and I would run away from home. And I would run the fields, and I would, um, in the middle of the night, just like beg for somebody to come get me. And um, so I felt this deep sense of disconnection and aloneness in the world, which I think actually created in me um, a really heightened sense of empathy for other people in their pain and brokenness. And, um, and even when I was a kid, I would say I could see emotions the way people see furniture. And, and I was irreligious, so I didn't have any kind of faith construct to absorb some of the pain and understanding um, the sense of insignificance and disconnection that I had. So I read every mythology book in the library by the time I was in sixth grade. I thought maybe in mythology I could find the story that would help me make sense of life. And I realize now I was also a graphic novel collector, and I realize now that graphic novels are just modern mythologies, Except for Thor, he's both ancient and modern. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, Daredevil and Batman and X-Men are just the Greek pantheon and the Roman gods and Norse gods. And and for some reason, I fell in love with mythologies because they, um, they gave me a place to escape. And it helped me imagine that maybe one day I could be heroic, that maybe someday I would I would wake up and I had superpowers. And, and so I always had this... Uh, hope that one day I could wake up and not be me, that I could be a me that I could value and feel significant and love. Um, and that kind of led me through a journey, graduated from high school, barely graduated, didn't go to college. Uh, I worked as a carpenter, lumberjack. I worked construction. I flipped burgers, flipped pizzas, uh, did everything that required no skill and no education <laughs> and, uh, and just started wondering, is this all there is to life? And I was desperate. And then I was running across a highway at, at 19 years old. I graduated from high school at 17, so I finished early. And then when I was 19, I was running across the highway, got hit head on by a car, became paralyzed briefly from the waist down. And um, and it was just one of those moments in my life where I'm, I'm feeling like my life is ending fast. And I didn't have a, even a perception of a future. 
which I think is the most dangerous place to be when you can't imagine a better you or a better life or a better world. And I begged my way into a school to go to college. It was a school called Elon University. And I literally drove to the university, walked into the administration office, asked to meet with someone in charge, forced my way into someone's office as an insane, desperate kid. And I looked at the guy and I said, I need you to let me into your school. And he said, you need to apply. There's a process. And I said, I can't pass your process. If you look at my grades, if you look at my transcripts, you'll reject me. I just need you to look at a human being eye to eye and give him a chance. I think it's the first time in my life I fought for myself. I don't know why, but the guy decided to let me in. And I end up in this university and I find Socrates uh, in a philosophy class. And my life changes in a very significant way. I start reading Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and I find the Stoics and I, I think to myself, there are people who are searching for the meaning of life, just like me. And I start voraciously reading through every philosopher that has lived from ancient to modern times, not as an academic and not because of any intellectual pursuit. I was hoping someone could help me see that my life mattered. And when I found myself in the midst of that, um, I had in my mind two options that maybe there is meaning to life and I could find it, or maybe there's not any meaning and I could accept it. And in the midst of all that, I ended up having a surprising conversation with people who believed in Jesus. And I laughed it off and discounted it. And for me, it was the singular last option possible on this earth. And um, which is sort of the irony of life is that the thing that you run from fastest and first may be the very thing that you actually need to run to fastest and toward. And um, I just came to a place when I was 20 years old. I basically didn't know, but I just kind of prayed and said, God, if you're out there, I'm in. If my life matters, could you show me? And then I made it real specific. I said, Jesus, if you're real, um, I'm leaving it to you to make that known to me. Because I didn't know how in the world could you prove God or find God. It would almost have to be like God would have to decide also to be found. And, and so I pivoted my life. The idea that you're created by God and that you have value, that you're not just a speck of dust in the backdrop of the universe. It was so overwhelming to me that um, it was almost, I guess, in some ways, even if it wasn't true, I'm, I was going to believe it because it meant that I was here with some meaning and intention and that I had value and it changed my life. So that's my brief backdrop. <laughs> I love that. You know, so much to dissect. Um, I was going to just... Nip, nip to Aaron like when you went to the house in El Salvador like yeah. with the context of the life that your father provided you know and you know we're here in this as well I guess not at the time I don't know what age you would have been when you went back to El Salvador I think I was young I think it was like seven or maybe eight. the first time you were yeah. seven right yeah. yeah I think I went back again at 10 I think we slept in the same beds that him and his brother used to sleep in. They I didn't think, even replace the bed. It was no, the it was same the bed. Same, I mean, these were, I don't know how you 
fit on them. I was tiny <laughs> was so being small. like, this is small. I don't know how you did it. But it was one of those kind of those moments of, I guess, realization. I was so young. I don't know if I could take in the full scope of it. But being in a place that was obviously so much different than the world I grew up in, in, in Los Angeles. So it was the jungle. It was, <laughs> it was hectic. There was bars on every window. We weren't allowed, I wasn't allowed to leave the house unless he was with me. And there was like this immediate sense of danger. And I think, you know, he skipped over a, a few decades of his life, but, you know, he, I grew up and he was working pretty heavily in the inner city communities in Dallas, Texas, and then and then moving out to East Los Angeles and kind of being around these, like, very heavily gang-related arms, drug dealers, kind of the Vato Chicano, like, Los Angeles gangsters that I grew up around. Then to go to El Salvador and kind of have this, like, juxtaposition of this, like, jungle, like, third-world country that we were kind of in and the joy that people had and like the happiness and like the, the, like the La Familia, like the family that people would like cook and enjoy and, and, and be around that it was like this juxtaposition of danger <laughs> and like love and peace and happiness that was like so inspiring to, 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 I could see how he became a product that uh, the product of his environment, right? You were so unique that it did not make sense. And like, also he's like six, you know, six, one, and all these guys are like five, five around us. And I'm like, you're like the alien. Like, no wonder you've never fit in. You don't fit in here. How did you come from this place? Um, but being a young kid experiencing this stuff was just so unique and so special, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, to, to get to experience his journey and in the way he grew up, even as, as a little kid, I knew it was unique. Wow. I mean, the, the fearlessness of going back, Face and then and then the gang facing the gang violence. So you just said before this, uh, when it's the thing you want to run away from, run towards. I mean, it's kind of similar with the stuff you were you were coming to help other people with as well. Mm -hmm. Was there an attraction to the the more difficult it was, the more the harder times people were facing, you know, the the grittier it was, the more you were going to get involved with it. Well, I, I think some of it is. I always perceived myself to be a coward. <laughs> you know, I was, I felt like I was afraid of everything. And, uh, and I, you know, I was afraid of failure. I was afraid of rejection. I was afraid of uh, getting bit by a dog. I was afraid of heights. You just, you pick it. I was afraid of it. And I think one day I just realized that what you fear establishes the boundaries of your freedom. And I was living in a self-contained prison, a self-made prison. So I decided to flip the script for myself, and I decided to make, to use fear to my advantage. Whatever I was afraid of, I moved toward. So I remember being in a gym, and there was this girl that I thought was gorgeous on the other side of the gym. I was so shy and so introverted and terrified of girls. And I remember walking all the way around that gym, and asking her to dance. And she looked at me and said, no. And I walked all the way back <laughs> and sat down. And my friend said, what'd she say? And I said, she said, no. I said, what'd you do? I said, I walked back. He said, was there a girl sitting next to her? And I said, yes. He goes, why didn't you look at her and say, would you like to dance? And it shifted something in my brain. And I thought, don't just ask once and don't just look for one option. Use fear to your advantage. And I just started doing that with everything. I was afraid of roller coasters, so I went on the fastest ones. You know, I, I was, you know, if I was afraid of the dark, I would just dive into deep, dark places. And I was afraid of rejection, I would just go out and go ahead and ask. If I was afraid of failure, I would go and try. 
And by the time I was in my 20s, I had a reputation for being an insane risk taker. And it was actually really accurate <laughs> and, uh, and assessment. I mean, I would walk into projects with armed guards with Uzi machine guns in every entry, cocaine stacked to ceilings. And I would walk in and make contact with the owners of drug cartels and begin to talk to them about life and God. And people actually made bets on what day I would be killed. And I remember one time there was a SWAT team that dropped in on a house and they busted open the door. I had an, a couple of uh, interns with me and uh, they were just apprenticing with me. I said, let's go. We run into the house. I mean, they're the, the you know, uh, is it not an FBI, but who the agents? The, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it ATF or I something? Mean, yeah, ATF, you know, they're yeah, in there mission. with their you know body armor and <laughs> weapons, and there's this massive like muscular guy named Maverick that you know I discovered his name later, and they're about to go into a huge conflict. I jump in between the uh, military, and I look at this guy, and I and I look at the police, and I go, I got this, I got this, because he was going to get shot and killed. And his girlfriend was there, and there's all these, and I just talked the guy down. I, I get him settled. I convince them not to arrest them. They finally all leave. I sit down with him and, and work out the situation, help him realize his life could be better. We leave. The interns go, How long have you known that guy? I said, Never met him in my life. <laughs> and, uh, and so there was this sense where the moment my heart would pound and I saw like danger or I saw risk. I just trained myself to move hard and fast. It opened up the whole world to me. It's why I was able to sneak through Lebanon to Syria and walk the streets of Damascus and fly into Pakistan. When on the plane, I was warned that if I do anything illegal, I will be arrested or killed in the country. And I learned the difference between thrill and risk. I, I did like thrill. Yeah, when did you learn that? Sorry, this is your podcast, but I would like to <laughs> no, know please. when. Yeah. When my kids came to me and said, Dad, would you... Stop taking unnecessary risks because we'd like to not be fatherless. Kids change it, man. Yeah. yeah. Kids change it. Yeah. And, and I, I knew I had to mitigate that request. So I made a decision and I said, I won't take unnecessary risks, but I will take the ones that make the world better or that can bring a positive change. And that's when I shifted from um, that adrenaline rush of, you know, thrill and risk and that strategic intention of a risk that matters. And yeah, so so I look back and I realize, I think all of us are trying to, you know, create a counterintuitive story. You know, if if we feel we were insignificant, we we try to find significance and we try to give people significance, right? You know, if we, if we need to be healed and we find healing, then we try to heal other people. And, and for me, mine has always been, there's a heroic narrative inside of everyone. There's a hero inside of everyone waiting to be awakened. And the reason I know that is because I was a coward, but there was a hero inside of me. And when he woke up, he changed my life. I love that. I, I've got a tiny bit more backstory to do, and I've got so much stuff to dive in here. Um, so like we was just talking about before, this is the most last minute episode we've ever done. <laughs> you guys have just finished an event, the arena, like incredible event you you've literally just stepped off stage stepped into this room so thank you so much uh we have lewis house to thank for this like it was you know a, a super last minute introduction i thought i don't know how i'm going to prepare for this and then you introduced me to your wife and i thought there's <laughs> there's the the truth right there and i asked her 
Could you give me a moment that was that describes Irwin um, that people wouldn't have seen, you know, on, on socials that people um, don't see? Like all of those smaller moments, it's not just like this grandiose, you know, the, on stage, you know, people see the stuff you do. It's incredible, but a small moment. And she said, yeah, there was a, a moment when I was pregnant with Aaron and it was in Dallas. It was chucking it down with rain. And there was a guy who needed help on the side of the road and you stopped on the side of the road and you went out and helped him. I mean, I'd love to talk about that specific moment, but also why, why, why help somebody, you know, that, and it, mm. I, I know, <laughs> I, I don't want to say, I feel like I know why, but like for the audience, like, why would you help somebody like that? I, I, it's such a textured question. And I'm not, I'm not even fully sure how to answer it. Um, but the other day I, saw this person on this story mowing a person's lawn that couldn't mow their own lawn. And I actually had this like visceral experience inside of me going, I love the moments I get to do things like that. Um, I had, I, the other day I was telling you, we were driving me and Kim and I said, oh, right here in this corner, it's where there was like this 90 year old couple, actually a Jewish couple from somewhere like Poland. And I could tell they were like waiting for the bus, but they were confused and 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 then he dropped something, so I just pulled my car over and got out and helped them pick everything up. And then I said, where they're going? And they said, we're going to catch the bus home. And I said, could I drive you home? And I put him in my car, and I drove him to their house, got to talk to him. And I never told Kim, and I don't know if I ever told anyone. And um, But it was like this moment. It's just, it's not for anyone else. It's just really because it makes me the person I want to be. And because I get the privilege of doing big things, and people think that's what makes you. But I, I feel like the only thing that earns me the right to be in the big stage is that I'm true to who I am in the small stage. You know, so yeah, but that was early on in our marriage. And I don't know if I deserve any credit for that one because it was pouring down rain and it was flooding in the streets. And I'm having to drive these kids home to their houses. Kim was nine months pregnant. She sees this homeless guy and says, you, you know, did you see the man? And I, I didn't see him. I couldn't even see the street. And she goes, you need to help him. And I said, I got to take these kids home that she made me take home. I did not want to take them home. So I drive all these kids home. I didn't want to get wet, you know. And we're driving back. She goes, you got to help the man. And I said, if I see him, I help him. I never saw him. And she goes, there he was, there he was. Did you see him? And I said, honey, I don't know if there was a man there, you know. And, and she goes, you need to go help him. I said, I don't want to turn around in this flood. You know, let's just go home. And she goes, we need to help him. Well, it's the royal way. She was pregnant. She did not mean her and the baby. She meant me, you know. <laughs> and uh, as she watched one of her servants go and serve her purpose, we turned around and I saw this homeless guy. He had a broken cart, shopping cart that he had stolen. And stuff floating all over the water. It was nasty. And I jumped out of the car um, and I went and re restructured his shopping cart and picked up all the stuff. And that was the worst part. It was just so nasty. And I'm a clean freak. And, uh, and I'm picking it all, putting it in his cart. And then the moment I finished, it stopped raining. And that's how I know there was a God, because I could almost like hear like God laughing, you know, going, I let it rain until you, know, you were done and then it stopped. And, and I remember getting back in the car, driving home and Kim starts crying. I mean, she, she starts sobbing and she is nine months pregnant. So you have to give her some, you know, leeway there. And I said, why are you crying? 
did I not do it with the right attitude? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> why the tears? And and uh, and she said, that's the greatest message you've ever given. And I had mixed feelings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't, did I want the greatest message I would ever give to be in front of one person and, and maybe two if you count him? But he wasn't observing the message, <laughs> you know? Um, and it just resonated in my soul. And I just thought, I need this, like, to be the measure of who I am as a person. And, and frankly, like, through our life, like, and, I, and I, I'm going to jettison this even to Aaron, because years ago, I was at this event in Orlando, and the event got canceled. I think I was supposed to speak to, like, 10,000 people. And a hurricane came crashing through. It was a pretty severe one. People were having to flood out of Tampa. And people didn't have a place to stay. And we're staying at this hotel and we have some of our team there. I asked the hotel, you know, why aren't you, you know, are you going to let people stay here? And they said, we're not authorized to let people who don't have a shelter stay here. We were really poor, but I had good credit. So I took my credit cards and I paid for every single hotel room in that hotel. And I said, fill the hotel with families who have no place to stay. I didn't know how I would ever pay the tens of thousands of dollars that we put on our credit card that day. And we never told anyone. And this is probably one of our first public conversations about that. I'm just, the reason I'm telling you that is because we've tried to live a life that was authentically generous and sacrificial. And I love that I get to do that. Like for me, the more successful I've become in my life or the more wealth I've had in my life, I just I just love that I get to do more good in my life. And it's not for anything in, pu- in public. 90% of everything we ever do that might help someone, no one will ever know. And I think that's really important. And Aaron will never tell you this, but he's a really successful entrepreneur. He owns two homes. In one home he has, he has rented it out to a family who can't afford the mortgage. So he pays probably 35% of the mortgage for them so they can have a home. And then right now in his other house, he has someone staying with him who needs a place to live and uh, who came here from England. That's who he's been all of his life. That's who our daughter Mariah is. They're the most generous human beings I've ever known. And I remember when Aaron's moving to New York and he would never tell you this. Like he writes a check to Mosaic for $6,000, which is every penny he had before he left because he wanted to leave with an act of generosity, not even knowing how he's going to generate his next paycheck. It's just for us who we believe we're supposed to be. I mean, first of all, both of you, you're crazy. Cause, <laughs> <laughs> right, because it's amazing. First, just before I get started, what a pride to have your children like that. You know, both both your children to be like yeah. that, you know, a testament to you and Kim. Unbelievable. But you're crazy, you know, going, giving away everything you had, but then it came back to you. And mm-hmm. it, kindness, you know, it was a, a giving in kindness. And I feel like it always does come back to you. It will in some it way. You, you'll yeah. be looked after somehow. Um, I, I 
personally think we've spoken about this so many times between my brothers and my sisters is small acts of kindness do change the world like it is those small things and i think it comes from within to it changes people that feeling you get from yeah. giving somebody food or helping somebody out when it's raining whatever it is yeah. whatever small thing it is and to have no expectation of, of that giving is the most rewarding thing i i, I wish and if 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 we was to put out like a highlight on this or something, like I wish that the audience would just give that a go. There's nothing more rewarding. Like people talk about so many different things. I, I think not to speak to a specific situation because it is difficult as well, because then it's like, like you said, like you, you don't know what you want to share. But I could ask Aaron for a, a million situations where you, oh. you've done it. It's so difficult. I, I mean, I was going to say, because you, I think you started with like, you didn't want to tell, you don't want to talk about that story from so long ago, but I think it's, I, I, the the thing I want to say is no, it's who you are, and that's why you've always done it. Even when you didn't do it with the right attitude, you you always do it. And I'm I I remember we were we were young, and like the the greatest gift he's ever given. He's given me so many great gifts in life. But when I was really young, he refused to leave me in school. He was always traveling and speaking, and and he would just pull me out of school constantly. And I was the kid who wanted to have perfect attendance. And this guy <laughs> ruined my life from a young age, and I think from kindergarten it yep. was. And <laughs> we were in Italy. And we're hiking uh, the the side of this 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 mountain off the coast, and and I remember that we walked past this like flower that was like blooming out of the side of a cliff, and my my mother said, ignore it, like don't say anything. He's gonna bring it up, like he's gonna stop us, yell at us, and make us all go back and look at this flower. And without a doubt, like a few seconds later, thirty seconds later, he's like, guys, come back. <laughs> And he's like, you have to see this flower blooming out of the side of the, the mountain, out of this cliff. And my mom is like, I knew it. I knew you'd see it. And I'm like, that's who you are. You always see the little flower out of the side of the rocks. You always find the, the beautiful thing out of like the nothingness. And that's, you find that in people, you find that in situations, you, you find that in your generosity, but it's like your ability to see the world in a way in which no one else can see it. And then you give back into the world a way that you want the world to give to each other. And that's as like a witness, a fly on the wall as your son. Maybe the guy who just carries your bag sometimes. It's, that's the greatest gift you can give to so many of us is the way that you see life. Thank you. And ironically, his mom and my wife, Kim, she has a very uh, tenuous relationship to success. My wife was an orphan. She was abandoned when she was eight years old in a government project and lived in a foster home from eight to 18. Never heard I love you once. Never had a personal possession that was her own. Um, they would only let her access water when they told her she could have water. She grew up working a tobacco field because they basically brought in foster kids to work their farm. And she grew up in that context. And she has such a heart for people who are underserved, who are outsiders, who are impoverished, and she struggles with, um, ironically, she struggles with my ability to create wealth. She would be much happier if I just minimized it. And I, and we have to have these conversations and go, honey, how much, you know, I can't say how much wealth is it okay for, for me to create. I actually have to ask her, how much money do you want to give away? <laughs> because she says, she basically says, as long as I can give away a ton of the money, 
and you can go make more. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's really who she is. She's like this incredibly generous person. Um, you know, I, I can't get her to spend $20 on a pair of shoes. And, but I can't stop her from giving away our furniture. I came home one day, we had no refrigerator. I mean, no refrigerator. And uh, and she doesn't ask me, by the way. You, know? <laughs> you don't have a, like a kitchen table or, or couches oh. in, in like half your house. Because we have she a gave ping pong table a couple weeks ago. in our dining room table right now because we don't have a dining room table. <laughs> and and I came home and there was a refrigerator and she put this little igloo. You know what those igloos are? You know, where you put ice for a picnic. Yeah. Where the, where the refrigerator was as if I wouldn't notice the difference. Right? You know? <laughs> and I said, honey, where's the refrigerator? And she said, I, I met this young couple that didn't have a refrigerator and they needed one. I said, honey, I also know a couple that doesn't have a refrigerator <laughs> and needs one. I've come home and all the furniture is gone because she met a, a, a young couple that didn't have any furniture in their house. And so all our furniture is gone. And not our extra furniture, our furniture, not our extra refrigerator, <laughs> our refrigerator, uh, not our extra car, our car. And I, I've walked in this community here and I've seen people with like really cool jackets and stuff and shoes. And, and I go, <laughs> I love your jacket. I, I have one just like that. In fact, I have a pair of shoes. They go, oh, yeah. Well, you're out of the country. <laughs> Kim brought us all over and she just gave away all your stuff. Yeah. And she is, and I joke with her, I said, it's generosity when you're, you're when you're giving away your stuff. <laughs> it's stealing <laughs> when you're giving away mine. But that's just who she is, yeah. and 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 I just think it's a part of our family. It's our family culture. Yeah. I mean, Mar- Mariah. I, I mean, I I've seen our daughter even when she's in her twenties. She would just save money and buy someone a car, and you know, pay someone six months rent. Or she's just that person, and no one will ever know. Yeah. Or she's done. And yeah, so anyway, but that's just a huge family value. Yeah. But it's also about having a mentality of of um of abundance. Like life is just I when you have a fixed mindset, you think this is all there is, you hold on to it. When when you're generative, you're going, I I can create something else. You know, if and I, I actually never think to myself, how do I get our budget or you know, down to what we're making? I always think, how do I just create whatever we're imagining. It's a very reverse kind of view of the world. And, and it's exciting to me. It's fun. I love that mentality. It was you, towards the end of the day, you spoke about wealth. And mm-hmm. I think you said something along the lines of giving yourself permission to be as wealthy as you want to be, you know, mm-hmm. but to be in a position to help other people. Yeah. It's not spoken about. I think so many people, they see wealth as this. I, I think you said it as well within, within like the church yeah it's it's frowned upon almost and mm-hmm. it, i mean on on socials it's frowned upon you know it's yes. kill, kill the rich kill the yeah. wealthy you know um but you, they are in the position the wealthy are in the position to be able to help people mm-hmm. and the, the, you can criticize how people are helping people but at least they're in the position to be able to help somebody mm-hmm. and if you can get in that position you're you have the ability to be able to help people as well and I, again, with our community, that's something we promote massively is like, mm-hmm. get yourself in a position to be able to help people and look look after yourself first, make sure that you're in a, in a stable place, but then be able to help people. Um, and I love that message you was closing out with today. Yeah. I just think that if you have the capacity to create wealth, it's a lack of responsibility to not create it. 
mm-hmm. because people don't have the same capacity. There are people smarter than me, people more talented than me, people more gifted than me. And and there are perhaps people I'm more gifted or more talented or more intelligent than. And you can't measure people equally. You have to take responsibility and stewardship for what you have. And somebody was born in Ethiopia. They do not have the opportunities that you have when you're born in Los Angeles. They might have the same in, in, intellectual capacity or talent, you know, or, or innate capacity, but not have the opportunity. If you have the opportunity, to me, you have the responsibility. And if you, this guy graduated from UCLA and when he graduated, he said, I don't know what to do now, you know, and his parents spent so much money on his school. And I said, you mean, you know, what do you mean? He goes, you know, to pay the bills. I said, you just graduated from UCLA and your parents spent a few hundred thousand dollars to send you to school and your entire motive in life is to pay the bills. You need to create a company that provides a thousand people with jobs so that you're providing 4,000 people with meals so that all of these families have roofs over their heads and food on the table and an opportunity for them to live their greatest dreams. If you have the capacity, to me, you have the responsibility. Wow. It's, it's interesting you say that. It's just reminding me of it, my dad. So my, my dad wasn't in our lives, you know, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, single. My mom's amazing. Seven kids, you know, by herself. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And we were boisterous, you know, there's five boys, like we were, we were pretty hectic. But my dad, he had that capacity to build wealth and he's from nothing. And, and he can, you know, he can like build a company. He'd, he'd crash it pretty quickly, but he could build these companies up <laughs> and, you know, get, and he had that capacity to build mm-hmm. wealth, but he didn't have the empathy or uh, I don't know, the ethics to turn it to good. There was, yeah. you know, so wh- where does that, that come from? Like, and, and the, I, I don't know, it's a difficult one. Like, uh, do, do we decide to do good or are we born into a situation where we, we don't understand what good is? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, it's one of the things I, one of the things that drove me to write MindShift uh, was that uh, two things. One is I felt like more people were afraid of failure than success. And ironically, fewer people crumble under the weight of failure than crumble under the weight of success. And if you don't develop the internal infrastructure, the character base to handle great success, you will use all of that power and wealth, fame, whatever you have for your own good. And you'll become basically a black hole where everything is being consumed by your desire, by your greed, by your lust. And and everyone around you gets consumed by you rather than having everything around you actually flourish. And so one of the reasons I wrote MindShift, and the first MindShift in the book is it's all about people. What you're describing when someone has great wealth and they destroy all the relationships around them is someone who actually didn't mature. When you're small, and I write about this in chapter one, you see life as all about things. And so it's toys. And then when you watch children play, they're all fighting over the same toy. There might be 20 toys, but the only toy that has value is the other toy that some kid has. And when you're small, you think life is about things. As you mature, you shift from things to experiences. You think life is all about experiences. It's the first kiss, your first date, 
your first, you know, whatever football game, your first, you know, goal. Everything is about experiences in life. And then if you mature, it moves from things to experiences to relationships. But the problem is a lot of people get older, but they never grow up. So they're still about things. It's just not Legos. It's Lamborghinis. Life is still about things. Or they grow to the adolescent stage where it's still about experiences. It's just not a first date. It's owning a yacht and a plane and traveling the world and going to Mars. And uh, and you just have to have another experience and another experience and another experience because life is still all about experiences, which is, by the way, why a lot of times hyper-successful people get married four or five or six times because it's not about the relationship. It's about the experience that other person can create for you. But if you mature, you go from things to experiences to relationships. Doesn't mean you still don't have things. Of course you have things. And doesn't mean you don't have experiences. You have even better experiences. But now life is all about relationships. And I think what you're describing with your father is someone who achieved great success, but never matured to the place where he realized it's all about people. And it's one of the driving principles. I, I, the first mastermind I think I spoke to during the pandemic, because all of these guys didn't care about the pandemic, and they were super wealthy, <laughs> and, uh, and they, were, they were making more money during the pandemic than before the pandemic. And so they asked me to come and speak to them. And I remember getting up there and saying, um, I'm not going to teach you how to get rich. I'm going to teach you how to not to die alone. Because they were all richer than me. <laughs> but they were also all alone. And I have this mastermind that I lead now, and it really started because I sat down with a guy who, when he was 29, had had his first $100 million company. And I think actually became a billion-dollar company. And then he lost it all because his board fired him because he was such a jerk, and from his own description. And then he spent the next year rebuilding another $100 million company. So he's very good at what he does. And I'm at this event and we sit, I see him and we, we sit down together and we start a conversation. And I remember I looked at him and, I, and he asked me, what do, you, what do you see? And I said, what I see is that you're going to die alone. You've made choices in your life where you do not allow anyone within the inner circle of who you really are. No one sees you, no one knows you. You communicate a message to everyone, stay away from me. And... Uh, and later on that day, another guy who was super successful came and said, hey, that guy told me you talked to him, that you slapped him around, and he used more colorful language. And, uh, and uh, that night, he said, I told my friends, I can't believe he talked to me this way. <laughs> no one talks to me this way. And then a couple hours later, he came and said, what do I do? So I started my mastermind, and I said, say yes. Say yes to people who invite you into their lives. And he signed up within 30 seconds. And one of the things I've discovered is that people who are hyper-successful become terrified of letting people into their life because they're not really sure if people love them or the benefit of being near them. And so if you don't develop the value of relationships early, it's almost impossible to develop them when you're successful. It's just like the person who says, I'll be generous when I'm rich, but right now I'm too poor to be generous. If you don't learn generosity when you're poor, you will never become generous when you're rich. The values that you want to take and scale, you need them at the beginning. I love that. 
I love that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Today's video was sponsored by the amazing Huel, a quick, affordable, and nutritionally complete source of food that I have used for the last two years. And the reason for that is because when we are running around filming these documentaries, flying around the world, making these projects and interviewing people, the last thing I can do is prepare a meal that's nutritionally complete, has a great source of protein, is powered by plants. It's impossible. So to know I can reach in my film bag, pull out one of these, glug this on set, and stay fueled and satiated throughout the day knowing I've had a healthy meal is unbelievable. It's an absolute life hack and game changer for me on set and I recommend them 100% to everybody that I speak to. So if you wanna find out more, head to the link in the description. My favorite product is Huel Black Edition. It's a great protein source and I use it for, after all my workouts to build muscle and to build strength. So if you wanna find out more, head to the link in the description. Before that, let's dive into the video. Just on that point as well, the relationships, the trust element is, is why I, I think a lot of people say, oh, I've outgrown friendship groups and all that kind of stuff is like, it's be a lot of the time is the the trust is that oh this guy's got what I've got maybe I can trust him as a friend but mm -hmm. I can't trust the friends I used to have or whatever yeah. but um, there was the talking point that uh, Kim said was something I really wanted to talk about and I, I'm only saying it because I, I know I can get carried away with conversations and it was she says why do you focus on she said ask him this said, <laughs> why does he focus on masculinity why is it so important my wife asked that question yes she, she asked that yeah. That's interesting, and I I, I love the the, <laughs> the the dichotomy of this mm -hmm. uh, because when we talk about a lot of the messages you put out there is about love and yeah you know it, it, and some people just don't think these these worlds mix so I want it I would love to hear it I actually do focus on masculinity and and I focus deeply on love. I think the most masculine men have the courage to love. And I think men who are insecure, who are hollow in their masculinity, want to be worshipped. But men who are rich and mature in their manhood know the power of loving. It's different than wanting to be loved. It's actually having the courage to love. But I also feel that um, masculinity has lost its appeal. And so you end up in this dichotomy of, of you know, you, they talk about toxic masculinity, but then the other spectrum seems to be feminine masculinity. And there seems to be no healthy masculinity. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, um, no, actually, I think that it's a good thing when men discover their strength and their courage, their nobility, their integrity, and I think it's a misread when people think women do not want men who are truly masculine. You don't need to become less to have a healthy relationship with a woman. Powerful women want to have powerful men. They need powerful men. Just And you don't need a wife who's powerless to be masculine. I think men who are afraid of their masculinity, who are uncertain of their masculinity, want weak women. Kim is powerful in her own right. I do not tell Kim what to do. I'm afraid to tell Kim what to do. <laughs> and she wouldn't do what I told her to do. And I married someone like that because she has her own mind. 
She has opinions. She has perspective. Uh, we we fight, and I I just would never want someone who was compliant. I mean, I, I want someone who's kind, and I want someone who respects me as a as a human being in the same way I would respect her. But I want someone who has their own energy and their own force of nature, and that to me is more exciting. But um, but yeah, I write books that tries to awaken the heroic inside of men. And I write, I do write books that tries to convince men that the most courageous thing in the world is to love, that being kind is the most powerful force for a man. Look, you can't be humble if you're insecure. I, I value humility as one of the highest virtues. You cannot be humble if you do not know your power. If you do not know your power, you're not humble, you're just afraid. You're not humble, you're just compliant. The only person that can be truly humble is the person that knows their strength and knows their power, then chooses it to serve, chooses to empower, not overpower. And I... I, and we've talked about this for years. I believe kindness is one of the highest values that I know that I have in my life. And when you have strength and you're kind, that's where it perplexes the world. You know, I, um, yeah, I, one day I, I was, I think, walking Bogota. I had my hoodie up, had my long, I had a pretty long beard thick at that time. And I said, Aaron, because I always, I always call Aaron in the middle of the night when I'm walking the streets. Usually it's like, I'm lost. I don't know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> Ping me. Where I'm, I'm, like, I'm in LA. I don't know where you no, are either. No. I said, Aaron, I just had this epiphany. I think I know why I've never been mugged. <laughs> when I walked the most dangerous streets in the world. And he goes, why, Dad? And I said, because I look like the mugger. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I have stared at people uh, who were bearing weapons and arms who have cut people's throats with their switchblades. And I've said face to face, toe to toe. And I am, uh, I've never in my mind doubted that I was a dangerous person. And I, and I am also the safest person. When you're not dangerous, you're not really safe. You're just weak. But when you're when you have power and force and strength, and then you choose to use that power and force and strength to be meek and kind and compassionate, to me that's what it means to be masculine. Uh, it means so much more as well. And you look, it's so true. It's so powerful. We are uh, interviewed. It might have been some of those clips you'd seen. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Master Shahong Yi, and he talks about this concept of the um, demon hand and Buddha heart. Do you, have you heard of that concept before? No. So it's the the Buddha heart is kindness, and mm -hmm. it's it you need you need these two things, and in combination on their own, they're they're no good. Buddha heart and Buddha heart is kindness, but it's not going to reach other people. You can't, you don't have the force to be able to give it to other people. Mm -hmm. Demon hand and demon hand is just it's not going to help anybody. But together, to be able to have that that force to be able to attack and to be able to deliver it. 
the the demon hand, but to deliver the good of the Buddha heart. And it's this it's this balance that that people need to have. That's his his way of explaining it. But and I, I agree with it like completely. Like the the kindness with strength and power is completely different. And it's funny. I, I see a few of the people that you've had on stage mm-hmm. and I, I can I can see the people that you, you've picked to, to speak have that. Uh, but Lewis is one of those guys, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it is, it means so much more when they they could take over the world without being kind if they really wanted to, but because they do it in <laughs> kindness, it's a completely different thing. Mm-hmm. It means so much more. So yeah, it's powerful. And then we speak about the arena and what you guys are doing giving voice to those people. I mean, where did it all come from? Like, what was the birth of that? You know, initially it came from this idea that I was really struggling with my ability to communicate. It was about 10 years ago and I I, had moved to New York and I was coming back and I was just trying to figure out how to become more like him on the communication side. And I begged him to please just write down like a how to communicate to people and he comes back with this just so like he, he just this very feng shui Japanese inspired five elements of communication. And I was like, dog, give me something real. <laughs> um, and and he's like, no, no, like, trust me, write these five elements down and and then bring your friends to the house and I'll walk everyone through it. And so he did it for, I want to say four to six weeks. And by the fire, end, wind, fire, water, wind, water, water, earth. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and kind of connects this to the different frequencies within ourselves and how to communicate with passion and with fire and to, with these aha moments with wind and, and to how to make things practical, but also emotional and passionate. And 10 years later, we're in the middle of COVID and a lot of it came from just boredom. We were really locked down in LA. I was in this really dark room that was, you know, on the other side of this wall where we hosted the arena and it was painted black and it was a very much a theater. And one day I came in and was like, I can't do this anymore. I had a team of maybe seven, seven people who were there with me, creatives filming this content, trying to get it out to the world and bring some hope to people in their homes. And I was like, we're painting the whole thing white. And we wanted to create this gallery. And, and Jerry said it earlier, he, he quoted Virgil and talked about the idea of like the squashed can, whether it's in a garage I've or whether that, it's yeah. in a, And that's the quote that inspired the, oh, the, wow. the gallery. I didn't say it in the moment, but I was like, I want a space where people who are trying to get out of darkness don't go to a room in darkness. They come to a room with light, it's filled with light, and that we can help bring in the emotion that people have. And so the 10 years later, we're in the middle of COVID and I go, hey man, what about uh, filming for two days on this five elements of communication? He was like, no, no one wants that. <laughs> you didn't even want it. And I was like, no, no, trust me, trust me. Let's do, let's do like a masterclass and film it and just give me two days. Like you could do it in four hours, but give me two days, we'll film it, we'll record it, release it to the world, see how that goes. So we released this thing called the Art of Communication. And from there, we did this like bonus package of like these weeks of Zoom calls where we kind of jumped on with people and asked questions and gave them the space to ask questions. And the last uh, week, I I was a little cruel and I was like, what if we pull clips of all these communicators and call it the arena and we get you to be like the Simon Cowell judge <laughs> and just rip them apart the way that you rip me apart? <laughs> Because he's very kind and 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 generous with with his critique, but if you you know you get into it, he's a little harder on some people, and it was the most like good anxiety 
like written experience, people were cringing on Zoom. I have so many screenshots of people just like melting, like grown men, you know, just I can falling. imagine. Yeah. yeah. And it was just so fun. And from there, we were kind of left with this thing of going, okay, well, we did this moment. Like we don't, we're not going to keep doing these Zooms. And a year later we were together and we're like, how do we build on the community aspect of what we're doing? And so we were riding bikes in this like little jungle in Mexico and where he's yelling like different names for communities. And he said, was the, the, what was it Let's call it the Acropolis. (laughs) That was me. And I'm like, we're like yelling names, like as we're riding down this path. And I'm like, no one knows what that is. (laughs) And, and, and he's like, and we're giving ideas. And he's like, you can hate my ideas, but at least you're, I'm giving ideas. And he goes, no one knows how to spell it. (laughs) (laughs) True. And then I, so one of us just said, yelled out, like, let's call it the arena. No, that was you. Well, one of us. (laughs) Aaron yells out, that's the arena. And I said, that's the name. Because yeah. I, I may not have the best idea, but I can definitely identify the best idea. Yeah. And the moment he said the arena, it the conversation was over. Mm. We knew it was it was as to me it was if it came to us. Yeah. And it had to exist. But why teach communication? I, I think even more than communication, I think the the real subversive thing that we're doing is <laughs> that he's doing is teaching people how to think. Yes, that's the secret. It's the, the, the triangle that we use is communication, leadership, character, you know, mastery, and then, then the space in between its big ideas. But the conversation I've had with Aaron and because he says, dad, help people speak better. And I would say, I can't help that person speak better unless we help them think better. But they don't know that what's limiting their communication is actually their limited thinking. So he said, all right, maybe we can create this space. And what we're really going to do is help people elevate how they think. But they, if I, if I said, I'm going to help you elevate the way you think, you might be too pragmatic and go, no, but I need to learn this how to speak or how to lead. But I'm going, you can't learn how to lead at a higher level if you don't learn how to think at a higher level. You cannot learn how to communicate at a higher level if you don't learn how to think at a higher level. So... The universe of that, of this space is we want to elevate the way people think. And that's to me, the, the real power of the arena. And then when you think at a higher level, suddenly you begin to communicate better. Suddenly you begin to lead better. And also when you think at a higher level, suddenly you, suddenly you become a better human being because you realize I keep making the same stupid choice over and over again. And uh, maybe I need to think at a higher level. And, and the, the mind shifts in this book are so simple. And in fact, they're so simple that the moment you see them, you'll think, of course, why didn't I think of that? The problem is that people don't think of that. And that the most profound things in life are actually incredibly simple. They're not simplistic, but they elevate the way you think. And then they remove the ceilings that have limited your life. There's like one of the chapters is you are your own ceiling. I mean, once you see it, it becomes so clear. But when you can't see it, you just can't see it. And most of the people I coach, their ceilings are completely constructed by their own choices. And yet, so oftentimes they think it's because of some external environment or circumstance. And and that to me is like one of the frustrations when I think, oh my goodness, this person is just one degree off from an extraordinary life. If I could just convince them to shift that one degree. So it is about thinking. 
I love that, man. I love that. I mean, the just on the, that point of um, we are our own limits. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, for me, growing up, like I, I felt that there was a certain roof for me. Like I, I, I did. Like I, you know, baked into me growing up. In we, we grew up in a council house, which is like um, I don't know what you guys would call it over here. Um, Government housing. Like it's a project. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's when you say project yeah, yeah. in the UK, it's different. Like, okay, okay. yeah, but it's it's government government housing. Okay. Government yeah, housing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, for us, that's that was kind of our limitation. We we love the film industry. We're like, we want to get involved in that. We want to be a part of the film industry at some point, but we can't. Like, we're like, that's not allowed. You know, mm -hmm. we, no one's no one breaks into the film industry. It's not the way it is. And there, I I don't know which what part of my life it was, but there was a moment where all these like limiting self-beliefs started to unfold and started to, and I had a lot of evidence-based things. And it's, it's funny you say there's a degree to that. Cause I'm going to give you an example here. Um, a couple of years back, I interviewed uh, a, a man named Ben, Ben Francis. He's the CEO of Gymshark. And he, he just, it just turned like into a billion dollar company at the time. So he took us around the facility and it like, raised the limiting self-belief for me i'm like this mm -hmm. guy here right is mm -hmm. looks like me walks like me talks like <laughs> me i know you know if he can do it then i can do this as well so mm -hmm. it raised that limiting self-belief for yeah. me mm -hmm. but there was still a limiting self-belief <laughs> and that was the gym shark which is still massive yeah, don't yeah, get me wrong yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah, a big yeah. it's a big thing but it, it was a limiting self-belief and i think what you're talking about is mm -hmm. there's a beyond there's a beyond that there's a beyond yeah. evidence it's anything's achievable anything's possible Yep. And even just in terms of um, some of the conversations at the arena live in Los Angeles, when people are trying to describe the inner world, you know, the ego, the self, the soul, and all the language is so limiting. And we were all talking afterwards. I said, the problem is you're trying to describe with static language, something that's an ever-expanding internal universe. For some reason, the, the human body creates an illusion of the reality of what a human is. Because when you look at a human body, it looks like you're self-contained. But you don't realize that there is a universe that's ever expanding within you. And it's limitless. In the same way that we live in a universe that is ever expanding and limitless, there is one inside of you. And if you could begin to have a different internal narrative of going, I'm not trapped in my skin. I'm a cosmos. And every time I grow, that potential increases. I had um, someone, you know, one of the phrases people say, and someone said it to me was, you know, I, I, I don't want to die with potential. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. And I used to believe that. I don't want to die with potential. And I thought, that's impossible unless you don't use any of your potential. And it just shrivels up and dies. I'm going to die with so much potential that on my tombstone, it's going to say, he had so much potential. <laughs> because whenever you use your potential, you end up with more. Whenever you use the potential intelligence, the potential talent, the potential skill, the potential essence of who you are, you get more. So you want to catch 22? If you use up more potential than anyone else, you're going to die with more potential than anyone else. <laughs> so if your goal is to die having used all your potential, the only way you're going to do that is to shrivel up that potential by never using it. And so I'm going to die with more potential than any day before that moment. Because if you use it, it just keeps growing. And that for me is exciting. 
I love the way you just put that. I, yeah. Um, let me let me go on to some some punch points for this documentary. By the way, Kim said that you are in the film, like you've been involved in filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, we have both I'll of us. Tell so, them, you know, you want to tell them. Please, I, I, I'm, I'm excited. Tell them about your. No, like we, uh, I used to own a uh, small film company, and Aaron worked with me. Oh no, tell them what union you're a part of. What I am a part of SAG. I don't tell people very much, but <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, and that's why I'm technically on strike. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but um, uh, my favorite thing I've ever done was that I had a friend who wrote for Dexter and love that and Jessica Jones and um, and a few other very dark shows. One of my favorite <laughs> shows is. And he called me one day. He goes, I have an idea for a TV pilot. And I wrote the character with you in mind. And I'd like for you to like, you know, star in it. And I said, well, what's the character? He goes, he's an assassin. <laughs> I said, now Why? Did I come to mind when you're thinking of a sociopathic assassin who has a great family? <laughs> and, uh, and so I ended up, I ended up doing this uh, TV pilot with him. I learned how to shoot a gun. I was a natural, by the way. First time I ever held uh, a gun, I shot five out of six bullseyes. And uh, a government assassin, sharpshooter, taught me how to shoot. Um, I learned how to jump through bulletproof glass. I learned how to jump out of windows and buildings and so it was really so much fun. I had a great time. And so I've done a few projects. I did a movie in with Willie Nelson in his farm. And so those that's my secret career, you know. But I just it's just fun. And wow. uh, it's just a really interesting little thing yeah. along the way. Uh but really in the film industry what we did is we shot documentaries around the world together. Um we um I mean yeah. so I mean for us, my my thing is the I think documentary film is the the most inspiring medium there is like I, that's we pursue that passionately like i don't think there's a, a combination of things that come like art forms that come together that can really move somebody to like impact and change their lives uh so that's our mission right now is to mm. is to do that it's cool to hear that you guys have done that when when um uh, Austin was talking about Kim and what she does in Africa. I'm like, I'm out there. Like, I need to get out there and like share some of this. But uh, yeah, I think that's amazing. Like, and I, I think there's there's loads of different ways of delivering it. But for me, documentaries is the way. I mean, what kind of documentaries do you used to shoot? We did several. We um, we did one in Calgary and Vancouver. We shot in Manila, Singapore. Oh wow, you guys have been busy. <laughs> yeah, we actually we had a really fun yeah. shoot where we um we went we drove from Vancouver to Kelowna is kind of like the Napa, I guess, mammoth of, of, of Vancouver. And, you know, we had two cars. He was in the car with no gear. And then I had these two just like big boy Filipino DPs that I, I was the younger. So I let the older guy drive and he never told me that he'd never had a license up until the year before because <laughs> he grew up in New York City. He's like, and so we're, we're driving through like the mountains and we're in this minivan packed with gear. And this is, this is 15 years ago. And he goes, hey, guys, like, I forgot to, like, fill up gas. And I'm like, what What do you mean? We were just at the gas station. He's like, yeah, I got snacks. He's like, yeah, it makes so much sense for me. Like, you're, you're a big boy. Like, this is a true snacks. film crew. It's a true film <laughs> yeah. crew. And it's like, so you didn't get the gas? He goes, no, I didn't get the gas. And and so we, I'm like, look, man, we said, just don't hit the gas. Just let drive a neutral. Just float down the mountain. We'll get to the gas station. That was, like, 25, you know, minutes away. We almost hit two moose as we're driving down this hill. And then we get to the gas station 
and I go in to get snacks because I don't trust them anymore. So I fill the gas up and there's a drug deal going on at this gas station and this big boy just comes running in. He's like, dude, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, I, we, they just pulled out guns and literally started moving like kilos of stuff into like the trunk. I'm like, these guys are the worst drug dealers of the whole world. <laughs> Why are they doing this in broad, like, you know, middle of the night, but at this gas station and we leave and we go into town and he's like, where are you guys? It's so late. You're so behind. And we're driving across this bridge or this beautiful lake and it's got to be 1230 in the morning and we just see this house on fire in this neighborhood. And we drive to this house and we start running into this house and this elderly couple is just, the house is in flames and we go into the house. Neighbors are everywhere and we're pulling this couple out of the house. This I cannot make this thing up. And we get this couple out, They we get into the corner and we jump back in the car and these dudes just are like, we're a bunch of heroes. And we're laughing so hard as we're like doing this thing. Everything we've done, this whole documentary with him is just so incredibly meaningful. It's about the idea of like intimacy, meaning, and destiny and this uh, idea that there's three functions, uh, everyone's, that these soul cravings, this idea that all humans have these uh, innate desires and cravings inside their soul. And we had this just this wild night on this documentary. And, and honestly, it had nothing to do with this conversation that we're having. But it was one of the most exciting and funny things. And we get to the hotel and he's like, what the heck happened to you? I'm like, you will never believe what has just happened. And yeah, but so we, we did spent is years we, doing it. We would go into cities and um, I, I, I developed a anthropology on, on human intention, motivation, what causes humans to do what they do. And I um, concluded that every human being has three intrinsic needs to a need for intimacy, a need for meaning and a need for progress. And so we basically traveled the world and interviewed people in cities all over the world and began to get their stories and showing how their lives were actually driven by these three narratives. And Aaron would get interviews that I don't even know sometimes how he got, he got an interview with one of the richest billionaires yeah, in yeah. Canada by just Large, just like art collection in Canada but just Bob emailing Graham, yeah. him and asking him or something yeah I would just like <laughs> it was really fun so he would ship me off to cities for like a couple yeah, weeks before ahead of time and I would just start like straight up stalking people like just showing up coffee shops just trying to meet like find a bartender okay do you know this person okay let's find oh, it amazing and it was just incredible and like so many people were just so open we had some, so many great experiences and yeah. one of my favorite was that he found this graffiti artist who was really famous for yeah, painting on streets yeah. then we found this female orchestra conductor who just was like epic right yeah, you know yeah. and she had, uh, like bright orange hair yeah. she's this young female conductor in, in calgary yeah so i convinced them to let us film oh you all well, you convinced them yeah. to let us film them performing then we filmed the painter shoot doing a graffiti yeah. work and then we edited the orchestra and the graffiti Oh, painting wow. and conducting and the violins moving and the paintbrush moving and and cool. so we, we found ways of integrating the visual experience of our need for intimacy meaning and progress and um and what was helpful is we did one in vancouver and so then this billionaire in calgary called someone in vancouver that was a part of the first documentary and he told me this later he goes the reason i said yes is i called and they said it's like therapy when this guy interviews you, you're going to discover things about your soul that you didn't even know were there. You're going to experience healing you didn't know that you needed. Just trust me, it's therapeutic. Mm. So he brought us into his world. 
And I, next thing I knew, I was also going back months later, invited to his house to a big party and just become a part of people's lives. And, you know, and um, yeah, and so the, the people we interviewed were always just fascinating people. We find a young indie band and filmed them doing a concert on the roof and, you know, just would uh, find this beautiful way of telling the story. Oh, exciting. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. go watch all of this. I don't even know if they're, they're available anymore. Oh, yeah. We'll send you the links. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. I'd love to. They're a while back. But, but. You, you two sound like a hoot to hang around with. Like, houses <laughs> on fire, like, drug deals. That's one night. <laughs> that, bro, that was, one, that was the wildest night I've ever had. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty yeah, it was crazy. crazy. But they shot the most beautiful B-roll you'll ever see in your life. Yeah, yeah. it was fun. It was oh, really gorgeous. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love to get a link to that. I'd love yeah, to see that. Send it to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we had the city of Calgary tell us, no one's ever seen our city this beautiful. Yeah, they released the documentary at Stampede, which is like the Cowboy Coachella. Oh, there's wow. like one. I think it's like 1.2 million people come into Calgary every year oh, for this wow. like two week like rodeo concert, country fanatic thing. So we didn't go to that part, but it was it was yeah. really cool to be a part of it. Sorry, I cut you off. No, that was good. Yeah, yeah, and and so we've just done a few things over the years. In fact, someone came to the arena and said, "I came because 20 years ago I saw this short film mm. of choices." of the person running through the jungle, mm. remember? No. We went to Hawaii and we oh. shot these series of oh, short films. Out. Yeah. And it was really cool. We had this person running through uh, the forest and it was all about choices and they're running faster and faster and faster and they're weaving in and out, in and out of trees. And I'm doing this five, six minute narrative. Yeah. And then all of a sudden at the end they go, but then we come to this intersection where we, we don't know what to choose and then the person split in half and went in both directions at the same, you know, at the same time and created this like visual metaphor of what, how we end up being broken and shattered because wow. we do one thing when our souls want to do nothing yeah. and we become what we didn't want to become. And, and so we would find ways of telling stories yeah. that, you know, really unwraps human principles. I mean, you've had your finger on the pulse with art, like this, you know, the, throughout all the stories you've been speaking about. Kim said this. I said, what, what do you think Erwin's uh, deepest fear is? And she said, to be irrelevant to culture, in, in relevance to, the, she was speaking specifically to the, to the church, but like to be irrelevant to culture. I mean, how important is that? Yeah, I, I think that when I started a lot of things, I started being relevant to culture was really important. But I, I think that a part of my journey was realizing being relevant to culture is really important, but it's not my end game. It's sort of like my starting point. But unfortunately, because especially in, in the world of faith, there's so much irrelevance that you have to feel, you have to make up so much ground to become relevant. But becoming relevant means you're behind, and being relevant means you've caught up. But creating the future means you're leading the way. And so I, for me, the baseline is being relevant. I want to be able to have a human-to-human, face-to-face, heart-to-heart, life-to-life conversation I want to connect. That, that's what relevance is to me. It's not that we're the same. It's that we're true. And we can see each other and be honest. And then a huge part, of, I think my greatest fear is to never create the one beautiful thing that I was created to create. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> And so I just keep creating, hoping the next thing is the beautiful thing. You don't think you've done it yet? Oh, no. You know, I, I have artifacts of my journey to try to create beautiful things. But, um, um, and, and it's interesting, you know, I, 
I have this conversation with myself a lot, you know, because, you know, we've been in the fashion world and, you know, design. I've worked on a graphic novel. I've written books. Uh, you know, I've been in a lot of arenas of creation. But, um, but I think, like, my canvas is actually, like, the human spirit, that where I find my most tangible and rewarding works of art is when I see a person achieve their own personal greatness. And, and so as much as I love designing clothes and making films and writing books and having like artifacts that are in a sense expressions or proof of my creative essence, um, they pale uh, in comparison to when I feel like, wow, I've helped someone find themselves and become like the best version of themselves. That to me is the work of artistry that is uniquely, I think, my space. How would you explain that to somebody? Um, for some, for, especially people without, uh, who haven't experienced success, uh, haven't experienced money, houses. You know, I, I feel like I've, I've been in a portion, a t- portion of time, maybe like eight years ago, where I was driven by success, proving people wrong, money. That was my goal. You know, to have all those things, and you could not have told me any different you know that was it that's what I wanted and I I needed to get there to find out and then you know that's 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 what I'm going to do but I do feel like there is a message for those people that might help them and ease them and make them realize it's a powerful energy it's a powerful force to get people to where they want to be but I feel like there's a better way yeah I, I think one of the things I try to help people see is hey fame like wealth power, success, they're wonderful outcomes, but they're terrible intentions. Like when, when wealth is your intention, you will be empty. You'll never have enough. When fame is your intention, you will be a slave to the audience. You will live for the applause and die when you don't have it. And you'll feel an incredible aloneness because when you're by yourself, no one is, a, is celebrating you or applauding you. Those are the worst intentions, wealth, fame, power, position. When your intention is to do something meaningful in the world, when your intention is to become a human being that's um, that makes a positive and beautiful contribution to the world. In one of those business events we did in Salt Lake, and somebody asked me about, how do you not lose your purpose when your business fails? And I said, your business should have never been your purpose. Your purpose should always be about the person you're becoming, not about the work you're doing. And if your purpose is always rooted in your personhood, if your intention is always rooted in your personhood, nothing can destroy that because it's always rooted in who you're becoming. Yeah, my business failed. I'm still becoming, you know, didn't want to lose all that money. Would have been really nice if I made it, <laughs> you know, would have liked to have been more successful in that arena. Uh, but it doesn't change who I am. It's just like, I spoke at this event a few years ago. It was really weird. It was a huge event. And I think they saw themselves as being like tastemakers, I guess. And after I spoke, they said, uh, they asked me to do a podcast. So I went and did it. And they said, you've now spoken here. (laughs) And they said, how do you think you'll, how are you handling this level of success? (laughs) And uh, I, and I said, well, I 
thought I was successful before I got here until you told me <laughs> that I wasn't. <laughs> I won't drop that line on you in a, in a moment, man. <laughs> yeah. And I said, evidently, I must have been living in the illusion. <laughs> and I said, but let me tell you how powerful that illusion is. When I was working with 10 people who were all impoverished, I actually considered myself a success. When I was making $6,000 a year and serving people and living a meaningful life, I lived under the illusion that I was a success. When no one knew me, when no one ever invited me to speak anywhere and no one ever signed me for a book and no one ever paid me to speak in an event, I lived under the illusion that I was a success. So I was never trying to become a success. I already felt like one. I was just moving toward it. And it's so much better to start from worth than trying to find worth. It's just so much. So I lived under the illusion that my life mattered no matter what impact I made. And it was just a, a more wonderful illusion to live in. <laughs> I, that's, um, the, the, I was going to ask you, was there a, a time where your intentions were wealth and, you know, those kind of things? And you had a moment where it changed for you. But is it, how did you develop the point where the intention was the, you know, the kindness, the giving side of things? You want, you want to dive into that? <laughs> I'm probably more the dark side of, of those things <laughs> where I think, you know, I think maybe growing up inside of like, we grew up inside the church where we were really, really poor. We look back at it now and it's, sometimes it's hard. I, I joke with my sister because I'm like, you don't really remember. Explain. The yeah. way, the way that it earlier, was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I grew up, he was a pastor in inner city, like on the, in East Los Angeles, 10 minutes from what they would call like Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, where where, you know, I don't know if there was an average income. There was no like official income. It was, you know, it's food stamps and like drug dealers and and kind of theft and robbery and that kind of world. Yeah, and Lame. And Lame and like the mafia and, and you know, your people, the Salvadorian MS-13, the, the gangsters. And and then to go from that world to kind of where we grew up, that in and out of that that space, it was like, you know, there was no money. There wasn't this thing. There also wasn't like this desire or need for it either. It was just going... We knew what we had and, and we were happy. There was a joyfulness about it as well. But I think growing up out of that, it was like, no, no, I don't want to live that life. You know, <laughs> I'm grateful for the things that taught me, but I also like, I don't want to go back there. I never want to go back there. And so when I was, you know, when I was 20, I was 23, getting out of college, dropping out, working together, building businesses, you know, the goal was the Range Rover. The goal was the watch. The goal was the 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 wealth and the opulence and the experience and the girls and the access and, you know, and then also showing up on Sunday and looking <laughs> polished and nice and, and showing that face as well, given, uh, I think... The cr we lost, I don't know, 12, 20 million. I don't know how much it was at the time. A lot. A lot. We had a bad partner that stole a lot of money from us. And as a kid, I remember walking in going like, I got the emails. I have the, the papers. I got the proof. Let's go sue them for everything they're worth. Let's ruin their life. And he's like, we're not suing anyone. And I remember the coffee shop in which he basically was like, you're fired. We're all fired. We have no more money left. This company, the thing we've been spending the last four or five years building, it's all gone. I remember being like, I just bought the car I loved, had this beautiful black Range Rover <laughs> and I sold, and I, in, in an instant, I was on a journey, a spiritual journey as well. And so I think it was like the loss and the sacrifice being, and the, you know, the, the wealth being taken away, but with this like sense of purpose and journey and the spiritual thing I was trying to discover for myself. 
and sold the car, gave the money away, wrote the, the gave what I had to Mosaic. I'd never given to church, even though growing up in it, it was a it's a value that I grew up with, but I'd never been generous on my own. And so it was this kind of process of how do you become a man and how do you find yourself and how do you discover the right purpose in this life? It, it didn't happen at 23. It was still like a 10 year experience of going, you know, there's still days now. Now I've, I have conned him into going, we're going to be the most generous people in the world. <laughs> but I, you right. And I, and I mean that in a, in a, in a good way. Like now I think it's success is the, the purpose for the strive to be successful is to go, we're good people. Mm, intentions, like, everything. We're good people. Let us, we're already generous with nothing. Let's go get something and be the most generous. I love that. Spreading my, the message that I want to spread is, is so crucial to me. So when my son died, I, I sold my business at the time and uh, quit everything. And, I, and my brother at the time was doing Mulligan Brothers and he was creating like compilation videos of like different motivational speakers. And I saw the work that he was doing. I thought it was incredible. He had 14,000 followers. And to me, I was like, that in a stadium is just such a huge audience. You know, eight years ago on YouTube, it was quite a big audience. And I was like, look, I don't, you don't need to pay me any money, but just the videos that I make, if you give me the revenue from those videos, I'll try and live off it. And I remember first, the first month was like $80 paycheck. I was buzzing. <laughs> like I'd sold my business, I'd quit my job and it, you know, it got $80 in the bank. And I was like, oh my God, this, if this scales up, this could work. Like it, in my head, I was like, this can work. Um, but the, the reason that it meant so much to me is because I knew that he was doing positive, like positive work. It was mm -hmm. helping people. People were being inspired by it. So then when my son died, it kind of attached, I, I quit everything to go and help people and to spread that message. You talk about your son, what was his name? Jacob. So I've got it tattooed on my hands. So for Jacob, so Inspire Change is the mission. And for Jacob is, is it was the power behind everything. And um, I think, it's, I don't know, I, I, that's, the, that's the part maybe I need to process because a lot of it was through the pain of losing him. I was like, it was such a powerful force that I wanted him to live on through what I did. You know, I don't want his, his death to be in vain. That's, um, for me, that was, you know, what I would say. I don't, I don't want him to die in vain. I want it to have impacted as many people's lives as possible. Um, but yeah, it's a, I don't know if that's, I, I still don't know if I'm, if that's the right way to go with it, I'm not too sure. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? It, like through loss, I mean, that is, that's where I, I do a lot of my work from is through loss. Mm -hmm. Is it, Can that be a positive impact for the world? Absolutely. I think it's the only place you really make the greatest impact. Otherwise you can't really resonate with other people. And it's, if you stay in your pain, you cannot help other people. I think that's the, that's the key, yeah. But if you can, actually um, find the the strength in that pain, you become an incredible source for other people because then it means that that pain is surmountable. That, you know, you can overcome that. You can find a way through it. And I think sometimes you're, it's almost like your your soul will lie to you or your brain will lie to you and tell you that if you let go of the pain, you've let go of the love. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. And so what you have to begin to hear in your inner soul is, um, 
the love you have for Jacob is actually found in your healing, not in the pain. I, I said this to Lewis yesterday. I, when I started therapy, the first thing I said to her is, I don't want you to heal that. I don't want you to take that away from me. It's too much power. Like, I can't, I don't want you to take it away from me. It's, and I, the pain that I feel for him is because I loved him so much. You know, and that's why I'll never let go of it. And I think there's, there's something still not clicking for me. There's still, still something there. And I don't want to risk disagreeing with you, but the pain you're feeling is not because you love him so much. And the pain you're feeling is because you can't give yourself permission to move on. Mm. Because then you feel like you've left him behind. And so your pain is the anchor that holds you in the past. Because you're afraid that if you leave the past, you've left him. Because he, in your mind, only exists in the past. But that's a lie. He'll always exist because you'll always carry him in your heart. So he doesn't just exist in your past. He exists in your future. In your pain, he only exists in your past. In your hope, he exists in the future. So why leave him trapped in the past with you? I think the, the letting go, I just don't know how to do it. I think that's the thing, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to let go. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to let go of him. I don't know how to let go of the pain. I just, yeah, it's difficult. Like, I, I really don't know. Like, uh, yeah, you have to separate him. He is not the pain. He is mm, the love. How? I, yeah. Sorry, I don't want this to go into a thing. Like, I, I just, yeah, I don't know how. I, I really don't know how. Why this is what matters. It served me to sit in that pain so much. Like, I, I think I, I've... I, it's I, the I, only place you know to meet him. Yeah, I go to that. That's the thing is, like I said, I said, I spoke to Neve about this. Like, I'll go to his grave, and there's a, there's a almost a joy in the fact that I'm I'm sat there crying and feeling that pain and just sat this. So I want you it. to start to meet him in a different place. Mm. I want you to start taking 15 minute walks filled with gratitude and hope and joy and laughter and meet him there. Create a new space, a new place for him to stay with you. And as you create that new place, you'll stop visiting the old place so much because you'll know he'll meet you here. And little by little, you're going to be able to give that other place away. Okay, I mean, that, that clicks for me. I, I, I hear that, find a new place for him. That helps me a lot because it, it's very physical. It's actually a location where yeah. it's his graveside. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. Um where I'll go, I'll go and sit, and it's very specific to me. I almost like think that's like, I I almost say that's the center of my universe. Is his graveside? Do you surf? I don't. No, no, no. What do you do for pleasure? Lift heavy things. I power lift, strongman. I've I've started recently running and obsessively running miles. Tennis, sports, anything, yeah, yeah any kind so of. So take him running with you. Yeah, running would be yeah. Take him running with you when you run. Say hey, we're going to run together. I, I I run and I lift. In yeah. a in a very similar kind of manner, though, I'll yeah. do it till it hurts me. Like I, I do, and I purposely do that. And I don't know, I, maybe that's unhealthy as well. It's quite masochistic the way I, I'll train and lift and stuff. That's okay because um, your greatness is on the other side of your pain. Yeah, and so the fact that you know you push yourself towards painful actually just means that you have a psychological disposition to always change the boundaries of your limitation. That's not necessarily self-destructive, you know. Mm. And uh, 
from one masochist to the other masochist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that feels re- reassuring for sure. Yeah. But, um, how long ago was it? Seven years ago. Yeah, eight coming up to eight. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's like it, it, it's birthed so much greatness, you know, for, for like goodness, you know. Um, it's funny because I, I I feel there's a missing there's a miss there's something missing. I don't know if that's it. I I hope it is. I don't know. I don't want. To put I want you to on. text us when you've created that new place, and he's more yeah. comfortable there than the other place. When, do you think I need a physical place? Like I've had such a physical place for it. You, where I think that's why I was asking if you're surfing because I thought maybe you could create you can find the ocean the or ocean. someplace. You know, you need it. You need a a place that's filled with joy mm. because you have a physical place right now. So you're going to have to. Create a new space, a new physical place, yeah. yeah. And then, but the real place is in your memory. Yeah, that's the yeah. place you actually need to create. But you might need the physical to get, space, yeah, to, to get to there. Pull away from it, maybe at the top, yeah. I, I, you know, we just said before this as well. Like all of this happened last minute. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you how much. Like that's not something I've heard before or felt before. Like the shift. Uh, there's quite a large shift for me, right? So, I promise you, this is this is what I do. Yeah. And if you'll if you'll trust me a little bit. We can reconstruct your inner world and help you find the joy that you need and the release from that pain. I, I, know, I appreciate that so much. Like I, can't, I honestly, and I, I can tell you this, like I've, I've attacked it, like I have probably the wrong word, but I've really have attacked yeah. trying to fix it. Like I have through therapy, through speaking to other people, but nothing's kind of like hit me like that before. So thank you for sharing. No, <laughs> yeah. What a, what a gift you've given us to yeah. allow us to be thank part you. of your life. Shall we, shall we pick up on some? <laughs> well, I, I wanted to answer the question you asked. And Aaron yeah, also yeah, answered this. So I think this is a nice juxtaposition. Okay. Because you asked me, was there a point where I shifted? Yeah. From, you know, pursuing material things or success or things like that. Yeah. To something more altruistic or more noble. And, um, and here's the irony. The story's backwards for me. Um, I was a monastic. Like I gave myself permission to have nothing. When Kim met me, everything I owned, I could put into a grocery bag, a paper bag, other than my guitar. And um, my family was pursuing wealth and success and driving really nice cars and taking a month in the Swiss Alps. And, and I was a reaction to my family. And so I, I saw wealth as evil, possessions as evil. Um, and then And then I became a follower of Jesus. And I at first, I was creating Jesus in my own image, you know. And so I thought, yeah, they're, me and Jesus, we're poor. <laughs> you, know? you know, me and Jesus have a vow to poverty. Me and Jesus hate materialism. Me and Jesus, you know, are against wealth and power and institutions. And I was, I would, I would call myself an anarchist. And um, and then I went to work with the urban poor because of that value. And in those ten years or so working with the urban poor. Um, it radically altered my whole view of my personal responsibility and um, of the economics of of human life. And uh, when I married Kim, I didn't even buy a bed because I told her our bed was a luxury. (laughs) We slept on the floor and she's so awesome. She slept on the floor and never complained. (laughs) You have to understand, that was the opposite. (laughs) I understand I'm so single. I have a bed. (laughs) (laughs) And... And um, and then when I went to um, this pastor that knew me in college, I, I introduced him to Kim. 
And I said, do you think, you know, this is the right person for me to marry? He said something really interesting to me. He said, she's exactly the right person for you to marry because she was an orphan and she grew up in poverty and you have an unhealthy relationship to wealth and you will grow to love her so much that you'll want to provide her a home because she never had one. You'll want to provide her the things that she never had the privilege or opportunity to have. And I don't know if anyone's ever spoken more truth in my life because I don't think I would have ever made the choices that created a home or created a family or reconstructed my life to be a husband and dad. And if I hadn't have um, made a shift to love someone more than I loved my ideals. Uh, and we were very poor for a decade. I don't think I ever, I don't think for a decade I made more than $16,000 a year. So I'm talking extreme poverty, even though we never acted poor, we never felt poor, we felt rich and alive and happy. We were as happy then as any time in our life. And I came home one day and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a deeply spiritual person, even mystical. And I felt like I had this moment of epiphany where um, I went home and I said, I think God is giving me permission to create wealth. And my wife had been married to me to, for 10 years. She goes, you can create wealth? I said, yeah, I always knew how. <laughs> and uh, I just was against it, <laughs> you know? And she goes, well, it'd be great if you could create enough, like, to pay the bills. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, I had to, like, make an adjustment in, in, inside of my own inner world. Um, and I was actually self-destructive. I would be offered situations where I would have been making $7 million or seven figures in my early 30s, even late 20s. I would always pivot to whatever was more self-destructive, what I thought poverty was my nobility. Poverty was proof that I was sincere. Poverty was my proof I loved God. Poverty was proof I was a good human. And and then I had this internal shift. And it took me a little while where I went, I'm irresponsible. Um, however you define it, you know, I had a grandfather who taught me how to play chess when I was three years old. Um, I was given the luxury of learning how to think and how to create. And I had a responsibility to the world and it there made a, it made a shift in me. And it was a parable really where, you know, Jesus talks about giving five talents and two talents and one talent. And there was one guy who took the one talent and buried it and did nothing with it. And that was me because I was afraid to use that talent in a way that it would, um, I would draw critique or criticism or, or uh, judgment from other people. And I looked at it and go, Jesus actually commended the guy who took the five talents, gave him complete freedom for how to develop it, and then celebrated when he grew at the tent. And I realized I'm the only person between me and God that hasn't given myself permission to live my life fully. And I've actually always been on that journey. And um, and I, I think there's some sense where um, I have to have a need so big that it gives me permission to create. We were making about $25,000 a year combined, me and Kim. And we made a commitment to give $30,000 to Mosaic on a project they were doing. That was more of my annual salary. 
And I said 25,000, but she said 30 because she's competitive. And so she said 30,000. And then I get a call from a publisher who heard me do a talk at a conference and said, can you take that 30 minute talk and turn it into a book? And I said, well, send me an offer. (laughs) They sent me a contract for $25,000. I had not even written a book. I said, well, I'll try. I said, we'll send you an advance. I said, no, don't send me an advance. I don't even know if I can write this book. (laughs) And I'm on a typewriter. I can't even type. I'm writing, you know, a word every two hours and it's over Christmas. But I have the book in my mind. I've written it in my head. And then suddenly this woman comes into my life named Holly Rapp, who became Holly Quill and said, I'm a sonographer. I work for Sidney Sheldon. He talks all of his books in. I've heard a rumor you're writing a book. Maybe you're like Sidney. Maybe you could talk the whole book in. I said, really? She goes, yeah, I type 149 words a minute or something like that. She goes, just come up to Sydney's, you know, I'm in Palm Springs, come up there. And when I get off work, I'll do it for free. And she goes, all I'm asking you for you of you is, could you pray that I could have a husband? <laughs> she ended up marrying my assistant. <laughs> and um, so I go up there and I write my first book in 24 hours. And that book actually wins an award. And we get a $25,000 gift or advance or royalty that we turned immediately over to the church. I would have never become a writer if I had not made a commitment to give $30,000. Every time we make a commitment to do something more powerful in the world, I become more generative. And so I've realized that I have this God-given capacity to create. And But my motivation is never success or wealth. I, Aaron knows me. You know, I just, it isn't what moves me. And what moves me is how, you know, what kind of impact can you make in human history? Like what, what kind of fingerprint can you leave on with the good you're doing in the world? How many people can you actually invest into where their lives are forever transformed? It's like, that for me is exciting, you know? And I love that we have a house and I love that we have a car, but I also love the fact that we've helped quite a few other people buy houses. And we've bought cars for other people. And frankly, for me, I wake up in the morning going, oh, what could we do? And I know Aaron has goals that he doesn't ever express to anyone. And because he started telling me, he goes, dad, there was no one there for you when you were a young pastor. He goes, I want to be the guy there for those guys. I want to be the guy that helps them get into homes. I want to be the guy that helps them have a better life. And I think that's what kind of motivates us as a family. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I've, I've decided to go public in my private life and to see how much capacity I actually have. Can I create millions? Can I create hundreds of millions? Can I create billions? I'm 65. I'm just starting. And, you know, and we're going to see how much we can create. And we're going to see how much good we can do. And it's the most exciting endeavor of my life. I love that. And let, let, let me close this out with uh, Aaron, because I, I think you'll, you'll be able to capture this really good, is with the arena, like what's, what's the mission going forward for this next year? And then also, how, how can people get involved now? Like after watching this video, how, where can they go? How can they get involved? Yeah, I mean, you can come to our conference in Los Angeles next year, 2024, immediately. Just 
buy a ticket, sign up. This is going, you're coming back. I'm, I'm going to convince sure. you. No, and you're going to come and speak. It's 10, 11, 12. 10, October 11th and 12th. And, uh, and then if you want to be a part of our online community, which is the arena online, you can go to ronmcmanus.com slash the arena and you can sign up and you can join hundreds of people who are dialoguing, having conversations every single day. They're entrepreneurs, they're doctors, lawyers, salespeople, uh, pastors, uh, all different types of walks of life who are engaging, uh, to leave their ideas in the arena to either live or die. (laughs) And the goal is to build 1% of communicators. We want to build the greatest communicators in the world. We want the arena conference to be filled with people that come from our community that can speak to the success and the failures that they're living in their everyday lives. That's the grand vision. It is. We want to develop the future leaders of the world, the future communicators of the world, and we want to develop people who are great people, not just great leaders, because the world doesn't need more great leaders. It needs great people who lead. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Um Manas. Uh, It was a life-changing moment for me to be here. We were in Los Angeles and we was with Lewis Howes from the School of Greatness, a wonderful man, and he was doing the arena. And he introduced us to Erwin and Aaron. And yeah, this conversation changed my life, genuinely. And that's why I fully recommend Erwin's book, The Mind Shift. It's going to be linked down below. You can have that same unblocking of certain things with his teachings. He talks about all different things, relationships, finances, jealousy, love, hate. It's all down below. So please go check it out. And I also want to mention, Huel, our sponsor today, made this possible. Find out more with the link in the description. Uh, I fully stand by Huel. They're a fantastic company. And I want to say a massive thank you to everybody who supported us at mulliganbrothers.com. The posters and the journals are almost sold out. Code 2024 is still active on the website for buy one, get one free. Thank you for watching, guys. This is everything to me. It's so important that we're delivering in this way. The feedback on the last video was unbelievable. But I need to know, who do you want to see next? That's the most important thing. Because this show, this content that we create in these documentaries are for you. So if you want to be a part of the family, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And if you are on Spotify, please do all the great things that Spotify asks you to do. Add us to your favorites, share with your friends, watch two or three times a day, and uh, have a great time with the self-development process using the Mulligan Brothers and Inspire Change content. Thank you for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Peace.